Let's talk all about digital assets and what you need to know to get started and be successful in your investments. Jeff Dorman is the Chief Investment Officer at ARCA. He started investing in the digital space in 2016. Jeff and Joe talk all about how to specialize your digital investments, what you need to know about DAO tokens and why they are so important, all the benefits that come with tokenization, and why Jeff says his key to increasing the net worth is making mistakes. Let's just get right down to business. This, this is The Joe Robert Show. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Let's get rolling by giving us a brief background about yourself. Sure. I'm Jeff Dorman. I'm the Chief Investment Officer of ARCA, which is a Los Angeles and New York-based asset management firm dedicated to digital assets. Uh, I've been in and around investing for 20-odd years. I started as a, an investment banker at Lehman Brothers. I then moved into a capital market syndicate role, then to a bond trading role, and then ultimately to uh, uh, Merrill Lynch and then Citadel, some other hedge funds. Um, so basically, I've been in and around value investing, event-driven, catalyst-driven investing across every asset class, every you know geography, every sector that this uh, investing world has to offer. So how did you come across the blockchain and crypto space? So I actually read about, so I, I, I took a brief hiatus from Wall Street in 2013, and I actually helped a friend build a fintech company called Harvest Exchange. And we had 10 full stack developers on the team. And a lot of them were mining for Bitcoin, mining for Ethereum, mining for Litecoin. Uh, but more importantly, they were all using GitHub re religiously, right? This is my first real uh, foyer into open source code and how powerful this idea of the sharing economy. Um, I think I read about Bitcoin for the first time in 2013. I didn't actually start investing in personally until 2016. Um, but you know, coincidentally, when I was working at distressed and credit hedge funds, all we did was talk about, you know, what is monetary policy doing to screw up uh, the economy? And, and we were all looking for ways to solve for that, right? Whether that was buying gold or, you know, shorting equities, which obviously didn't work, or, uh, you know, even shorting government bonds out of Italy and Spain and France, where, where economies were spiraling out of control. And all that time that every single Wall Street person was looking for ways to protect against this, you know, uh, monetary uh, policy change, the answer was Bitcoin the whole time, and none of us knew about it. So, when I kind of combined all this with, okay, I understand the technology, I understand the, um, I understand the technology aspect of it, I understand the monetary policy aspect of it, and now it's kind of worlds colliding. I, I had to enter full time, and that's how I ultimately started Arca in 2018, and we've been, uh, you know, going gangbusters ever since. Do you think that people just had a disbelief that something like Bitcoin could ever, never replace other currencies? I think it was more just nobody knew it existed, right? You know, it's, I live in Los Angeles now, which is a very entrepreneurial uh, you know, place. There's a lot of, uh, of venture capital. People out here are always looking for the next thing. When you're in New York City, where I lived for 16 years, it's the opposite, right? Everyone's looking to just do more with what they're already doing. It's a very myopic world, right? You're focused on debt. That's all you look at. You're focused on real estate. That's all you look at. And this idea of Bitcoin didn't even resonate with people until probably 2019, 2020. It was a very foreign kind of idea. Um, so I think it was less about, now to answer your question, I think everybody was skeptical. I don't, I don't know a single person who wasn't skeptical when they first heard about this, right? The, the, the progression is first you completely dismiss it. Then you might say, oh, well, that's interesting for others, but not for me. And then eventually you're like, okay, there's something here. I got to look into it. So I think everybody was skeptical, but I think the reason people didn't actually buy it until recently was, was a lack of education. They, they truthfully didn't know it existed. 
Yeah, I mean, for myself getting in some years ago, it was just hard to kind of uh, have an understanding of, you know, if it was actually viable over long term or actually believe in it. Yeah. Well, and I think that I think that still exists, right? I mean, yep. there, you know, I spend more of my time focused on non-Bitcoin digital assets, which we'll get into in a second. But but specific to Bitcoin, you know, it, it's still very polarizing, right? I mean, uh, you know, I joked recently with, uh, you know, the only thing we know for sure about Bitcoin is that the people who love it are going to get more annoying and the people who hate it are going to get more annoying <laughs> because it's really become this bipolar, like, you know, this, this, this political divide almost, right? This, this um, you know, religious fury into whether or not this is going to be the next currency in the world. So I, I think there's always going to be natural skepticism, partly because Bitcoin can't be valued, right? There are other digital assets that can be valued that have real cash flows and have real yields, but Bitcoin can't be valued, right? This is a, this is a, a, a theoretical uh, uh, asset and it gets stronger the more people believe in it. So it's going to be something that always, you know, creates a, a difference of opinions. So over at Arca, what do you guys do there and what are you investing in? Sure. So I founded ARCA in 2018 with two partners, uh, one, Rain Steinberg, who was also the co-founder of Wisdom Tree, one of the largest ETF companies, um, and the other, Phil Liu, who is a 25-year veteran securities lawyer who has you know, structured just about every product under the sun. So you know, for some people in your, in, in your audience, this may be boring, but you know, we're, <laughs> we're, we're typical Wall Street finance guys. right? We are, we're not technologists. We're not developers. We don't feel like you have to be able to audit code to invest in this space. Where, where we saw the white space was you have this growing asset class built on this new blockchain technology that to date has only been invested in by two, three types of people. You had your Bitcoin only people, which we just talked about who, you know, God bless them. They don't really care about anything else other than Bitcoin. So they're not exactly advancing the space. You had your algorithmic quantitative traders who were, you know, they would trade baseball cards and jewelry if there was high enough volatility and correlation. So again, they, you know, they make a lot of money, but they don't care about advancing the space. They're just taking advantage of what the space offers. And then you had your venture capital firms, which were seeing very far into the future, but weren't really taking advantage of the nuances of the space, right? They weren't looking at the different types of token structures. They weren't necessarily looking at how to take advantage of the volatility and how to, you know, uh, uh, you know look at relative value because they were using a traditional venture capital playbook of just get in early, lock it up and hope you have, you know, 20% of your winners that are big enough to uh, outpace your losers. So we saw a white space where we could treat asset management the same way we've always done in the debt and equity world, right? Strong risk management, strong fundamental research, you know, a, a real focus on regulatory and legal frameworks and compliant frameworks. And then separately, we saw a white space in, well, blockchain itself is the best technology ever for bringing all assets online. So we can use that structure to create traditional boring investment vehicles in the bond and equity world that are using blockchain technology. So that's ultimately what ARCA did. We created two sides of our business. We, we have hedge funds that manage and invest in the digital assets that exist today. And then we have an ARCA Labs or an ARCA Innovation Arm where we are creating new investment vehicles using blockchain as the wrapper. So within the digital asset side, are you guys investing in Bitcoin and all, all different types of cryptocurrencies or also security tokens? Or can you kind of define that? Yeah, so so we we run a couple of different strategies, but the flagship fund is a is the Arca Digital Assets Fund, and it is a special situation, long biased fund that is designed to take advantage of all the different types of digital assets that exist. So we like Bitcoin; Bitcoin's fine, but to us, Bitcoin is just one investment out of many. It's not the market; it's not beta, right? It's just you know, if you have a view on monetary policy or on gold or on currency, you should own a little Bitcoin. Where we focus is 
on the other areas that accrue real economic value. So like you mentioned, security tokens, um, we call them asset-backed tokens, right? Tokens that are backed by a real income stream or a real hard asset of some sort. Um, what we call pass-through tokens, pass-through tokens meaning a token that accrues economic value because some form of revenue or rewards or profit is actually being passed through directly to token holders. So we look at the whole gamut right now. Um, and, and what's really interesting to us is, you know, people, I, I don't even use the word cryptocurrency, right? The word, to me, cryptocurrency is just one small piece of the overall digital asset landscape. It, it would be equivalent of saying, are you an ETF investor? And of course, that wouldn't be a real question. You'd be like, well, what do you mean? Do I invest in bond ETFs or healthcare ETFs or you know, real estate ETFs? Like they're all very different. The ETF itself is just the vehicle that allows you to make those investments. That's how we feel about digital assets, right? You can't just be a digital asset investor. You have to be looking at these different pockets of growth within the digital asset ecosystem. So how, with obviously a lot of new people coming to the space and you know, including the listeners that may be looking to where to invest, it could get overwhelming pretty quickly, right? And you're, you're kind of talking about these different pockets. How do you, you know, kind of advise on how people should maybe start or kind of you know, narrow down that certain pocket that they should focus on? Sure. So it's a, it's a really good question. There's a couple of different answers. So the, the, the first answer is, even if you feel overwhelmed or behind, you should also recognize that there's nobody that far ahead of you, right? This is a very new asset class. You know, it's not like you have a Howard Marks at Oak Tree who's been investing in debt for 60 years, right? There is no 60-year veteran in this space. So even though you may feel behind or overwhelmed because there's a lot of information, you also have the ability to catch up pretty quickly if you decide to dedicate significant time reading, listening to podcasts, talking to people in this space. Um, now, on the flip side, a lot of the reason that there is so much confusion and so much um, you know, you know, a feeling of being overwhelmed is that a lot of the information that's out there is just flat out inaccurate and wrong, right? You know, I just said, we don't use the word cryptocurrency, but if you ask 99 out of 100 people, they think cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and something like Uniswap token is synonymous. They think it's all the same. And the reality is it's very different, right? Bitcoin is a currency. Uniswap is a pass-through token that is actually passing through revenue from a company directly through the token holders. Those are wildly different things. So once we start to get rid of the, the wrong language and we start to change the vernacular to explain what the space actually is, then people who have interest in the space can decide which pocket of the space they really care about, right? There might be some people who are more fixed income minded who are like, I don't care about 90% of what's happening in digital assets, but I do care about the yield bearing tokens where I can earn a seven or 10% yield, right? Somebody with a real estate or a private equity background might say, I couldn't care less about Bitcoin or pass through tokens, but I do care about an NBA basketball player who's tokenizing his NBA salary. And that's like a hard asset that is represented in a token form. So again, once we educate, once we help people break down the barriers of what this asset class really is, then people are going to start to specialize and can focus on the parts that interest them rather than trying to holistically, you know, learn about everything in the space all at once. So when you say pass through tokens and Uniswap, can you give us some exact ex examples? Yeah. So, so when we say a, a typical pass through entity, a pass through security of some sort, it literally, it sounds exactly like what it is, right? Where you are taking some value and you're passing it through directly to the holders, right? So for instance, when you own an equity, if they are paying a dividend, you are being passed through some form of the revenue or profits of the company via a dividend to your equity, right? Um, when we think about the token space, most like, again, Bitcoin was the first and Bitcoin doesn't accrue economic value. It just goes, goes higher as people adopt it. 
most of the other protocols and platforms that were built in 2016 and 2017 and were taking advantage of, of the, the, the hype did similar things. They issued tokens that had no real economic value. It was just go buy it and one day it might go higher. The new crop of tokens from 2019 to, to present are really thinking more about how to structure a token where there is some sort of value going to directly to your token holder. Um, it actually reminds us more of the fixed income market than it does equities or commodities in the sense that every fixed income security is totally different, right? You've got different coupon, different coupons, different maturities, different callability features, different ratings, you know, maybe different covenant language, et cetera. Like you, you can't do one analysis for fixed income because everything is so different. That's where we are today. So with Uniswap, for example, Uniswap is a, is a decentralized exchange. It allows you to go trade any token for another token using automated market makers who create the prices for you. And on some days they do more volume than Coinbase and Binance. I mean, that's how big this has gotten. I think they just crossed $100 billion in total volume since inception of the, of the project, and it's only a couple of years old. So it's pretty crazy how, how fast this has grown. Well, Uniswap didn't issue a token to grow their company. Uniswap raised traditional equity from traditional venture investors, built a company or a project, and then later issued a token to all of the people who use Uniswap. And what this token does is it has governance uh, 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 rights, meaning that if you own the token, you get to vote on things that the protocol actually does. But also one of those votes is turning on a fee switch, which is happening in about a month where one sixth of the revenue that Uniswap generates is going to be directly passed through to token holders. So this is a company that's now doing annualized revenue of about $600 million, which means that $100 million is going to directly pass through to token holders in the form of either a dividend or a buyback or something that, that accrues that economic value. So when you think about that in that pass-through token vernacular, you can start modeling this the same way you model real estate or a bond or an equity instrument, which is, well, what are the cash flows? You know, $100 million annually. How is that, you know, how is that actually being distributed? What's the market cap of the tokens? What's the yield that I'm earning? What's the you know, DCF model tell me that this is worth in the future? And you can start doing traditional financial analysis to understand I've got a growing company that is doing real revenue that's passing through that revenue directly to token holders. And very quickly, you can realize this has nothing to do with Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, right? This is basically a quasi-equity, quasi-rewards type instrument. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of talk. Obviously, crypto Twitter, has everyone has opinion out there. And for a little while, maybe DAO tokens were, people were saying weren't worth anything. And now people are saying, well, the DAO can turn on, like you said, profit share and you know now have cash flows. Do you think we're going to see that a lot more often? So this way, incentivize those token holders to hold longer? Yeah, I, and I think I think that's just one of many examples, but I definitely think that's where we're headed. And and the example I give is, think about Amazon for example. Amazon has two separate stakeholders, right? You have your shareholders who benefit economically every time Amazon books revenue and books profit. Separately, you have your Amazon Prime members who are benefiting from a utility standpoint every time Amazon makes a good decision, like giving you free shipping, giving you free music, free movies, free whole you know Whole Foods discounts, etc. These are two completely distinct groups of people. Your prime members are your users of Amazon. Your shareholders are your economic interest. What tokens are doing is they're combining that into one person. You are now the user of the, of the company and the equity, and you're getting the equity-like upside at the same time. So all you're doing with these tokens is you're creating the greatest capital formation and company bootstrapping mechanism ever, right? You are incentivizing your early customers, your developers, your liquidity providers, all the people in your ecosystem you're encouraging them to be early users and adopters of your platform 
because it's also going to have an economic interest as the company grows. So if you think about what these tokens are becoming, it, it really is just that. It is a coordination or incentive mechanism where you can figure out how to make your company grow faster through these, through these rewards and incentives. So going back to what your actual question was, do I think you'll see more DAOs? I, I, I think you'll see more of everything, right? You'll see more and more companies deciding, hey, I want to take care of the people who got me here, not just the people who invested early. And, and I'll give you even a better example. Like DoorDash just IPO'd, and what was that, $100 billion IPO or something like that? Think about who makes DoorDash work. You've got developers who built the website. You've got people who cook food. You've got people who eat food. And you have people who ride bikes to deliver food. None of them benefited economically from DoorDash's success. The people yeah. who benefited economically were the early stage investors who backed the company. That's a complete misalignment of incentives. What you need to do is say, hey, for every DoorDash out there that did succeed anyway, there's a hundred companies out there that didn't succeed because they didn't coordinate those early users well enough. Like, how do we make more DoorDashes? Well, you incentivize the bike riders, you incentivize the cooks, you incentivize the, the eaters of food, and you make these people say, I want to see this thing succeed because I not, I not only love the service utility, but I also want to benefit economically. Right. And you put those two groups of people together. And that's why these tokens are, 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 are blowing up. Right. It's not just because there's, you know, retail investors chasing everything called crypto right now. There's also a real reason these companies are growing so fast because they are coordinating all of these stakeholders faster than anything we've ever seen. And, and Binance is probably the best example of that. Right. Binance is the fastest growing unicorn ever. I think their equity valuation is probably in the 70 billion range and their token has a $20 billion market cap. Well, they were the first ones to introduce that pass through kind of hybrid token, right? If you own the BNB token, not only do you get rewards for using the platform in, in the form of you know, cheaper transaction fees and access to early deals that Binance was listing, but you also benefited economically and that the, the BNB token is up a gazillion percent as they took profits and revenues from their company and passed it through directly to the token holders. So you're seeing it in real time, right? This is the new way that companies are going to grow. Do you think Coinbase is going to do anything for their community or their users? Well, the, 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 I think they are going to try. The, the difference is Binance obviously being an Asian company or, or, or you know, geographic arbitrage, <laughs> wherever they are, um, and Coinbase being a U.S. company. There are still rules and regulations that prevent the U.S. from doing this. And... I don't even think that's a bad thing. Like I'm not anti-regulation. I think regulation will come, but the regulators are being smart in the sense that they don't want to put any sort of sweeping regulation through right now because it'll inevitably be obsolete the second it goes live because the space is evolving so fast. But at the same time, because there is no rules and regulations, it makes it really hard for a Coinbase to do something like this because they're like, well, how do I do it if I don't know what the rules are? And as a result, I think it's going to be more challenging for a Coinbase, but I think you will see 15 Coinbase competitors that will do it across, you know, South America, Europe, Africa, Asia. So when you guys are making decisions for your portfolio on these, uh, I guess, passive or pass through cash flow like tokens, um, are you betting on some of the ones that don't have that in place to put that in place later to share those cash flows or kind of how you make a decision for portfolio allocation right now? Because they don't all look the same. And I love that you're thinking that and asking those questions because that's, it's a hundred percent what we do and how you should be thinking about this space. So going back to the Amazon example, everybody who's an Amazon prime member thought they were getting free shipping, right? That's why they became a prime member. Most everybody who made that decision had no idea that you were going to get free movies, free music and whole foods discounts at the time of purchase, right? 
you basically took a bet on Amazon management and they delivered by taking care of you and increasing the benefits that you get by being a customer of Amazon. That's the same thing we're doing in the token space. We are saying, if I like your growth and I like your management team and I like the total addressable market of where you're headed, we can always tweak the tokenomics later to make sure the token represents something of value. Now, it doesn't always work. And, and half the investors who are listening to this will say, I'm not investing in something I don't know what it is. Why would I ever do that? And the other half are saying, that's amazing. Like, that's great. I don't want to be locked into just like a stock or a bond. I want to have that flexibility of growth as the company grows. So there's a little bit of both. Um, but, but ultimately, you know, that happens all the time, right? We are seeing companies and projects that after they all launch a token, they realize, well, this is working really well, but this isn't. So let's get rid of this and let's amplify that. Um, you're even seeing uh, uh, examples where like we were involved in a pseudo activist campaign last year with a company called Gnosis with a, that had a token GNO. Um, Gnosis has done a lot of really good things. They built a lot of really interesting product, products, but their token does nothing and it, it, it accrues no value. It's not even related to the products that they've built. We said, you have $100 million of, of ETH and Bitcoin on your balance sheet. Your market cap of the token is $30 million. If you're not going to figure out a way to tie it economically, at least you know give us the assets that are in the that are in your treasury. And they actually went out and created a DAO to your point, where now if you own the Gnosis token, it's 100% explicitly backed by the assets that are on their balance sheet. So you're going to see more and more of that, where a company's doing good things and is growing, but the token just was issued sloppily or without the thought of where we're headed in the future. But if you get the right management teams and you get the right focus, you can tweak these things over time to make them really accrue economic value. So typically, like you see in venture, you're basically going out there, uh, finding those teams and management and projects that are gaining the most traction and ultimately betting on that and anticipation that sometime in the future, you, you may have some kind of pass through rewards in, in regards to holding the token. Right. But with one very big, with one very big different uh, uh, difference there, right? When you own the equity of a startup, the startup itself may pivot a bunch of times into different businesses, but you still own just the revenues and cash flows of that business through your equity ownership. This is the opposite, which is the company doesn't even have to pivot. They might do everything that they were doing, but the token that you own is pivoting, right? And that's a big deal because you, know, you don't want to feel necessarily like you have to derail everything that a company or project is building or doing. If they're finding success, you know, let's keep encouraging that success, but we can find later a way to tie the token back into what they're actually building. You know, it's very interesting. It's definitely a very interesting topic because it's one of the things I think as you see uh, CZ at Binance discuss, you know, and just kind of keep evolving the uses for their token to, to keep it, you know, for the community and keep the price and, you know, keep the demand up, right? Yeah, for sure. And like I said, that's going to be terrifying for some because they're like, I don't want to own something that I don't know what I own and it has no legal rights, which is a misnomer anyway. But you know, some people don't want to own this flexible, weird, evolving token that doesn't have any actual you know, explicit use case. And others are exactly saying the opposite. They're like, this is amazing. I get to back good teams and management and you're going to help figure out how to incentivize me later. So it, it, there's definitely a reason that this asset class is not for everyone yet. Um, but I think we are definitely heading towards uh, from an educational standpoint, I think we're heading towards an environment where investors are starting to get more comfortable with this idea and this structure where, you know, you can own something and, and not a hundred percent know what you own, but know that it's heading in the right direction. So when it comes to these type of tokens and the investors, who are you actually legitimately like seeing coming into the space currently and making acquisitions on these type of tokens? Sure. So, you know, and again, I'll go back to, 
the majority of the world still thinks Bitcoin equals cryptocurrency equals the whole market, right? The, as an actively managed fund manager, right? The sweet spot for active management is when you're in a growing asset class, but you don't have growing competition. And that's where we are right now, right? The, you know, the Oak trees, the Aries, the Blackstones, the Apollos of the world, they're not in this space yet, right? They might be dabbing into Bitcoin for the first time and maybe even Ethereum, but they're certainly not looking at the, you know, the DeFi tokens and the web 3.0 tokens, all these different subclasses of, of assets. So I think right now, all the people that learned about Bitcoin and maybe Ethereum three years ago are just now dipping their toes in. And once they dip their toes in, now they're starting to learn about these other things. And it's going to take another two or three years before they start to really invest in the space. So from our standpoint, as a fund manager, most of the investors are family offices, high net worth investors, a few endowments and pensions here and there. They're just thinking of this as I already have a, I already have an allocation to alternative assets. Let me just take a a piece of that allocation and put it into digital assets, I think in five years, you're going to see much more specialization. They're going to say, okay, I want this part of digital assets for my yield strategy or my income strategy. I want this part for my quantitative, you know, high sharp ratio, market neutral you know, strategy. I want this for my VC sleeve. I want this for my liquid sleeve. And I think you'll start to see that sophistication happen in digital assets, just like you've seen it in every other asset class. We're just not there yet. All right. And so let's jump on to the asset-backed tokens. Let's jump over there, right? I mean, there, I mean, obviously the last couple of years or maybe starting in 18, you know, as the utility tokens started dying, everyone was talking about how security tokens were going to be the next greatest thing. <laughs> and obviously that seems like maybe it's still a few more years out. What types of assets are you guys participating in or underwriting when it comes to the asset-backed? Yeah. And, and first of all, I think, again, I think there's a little bit of a, of a language uh, uh, upgrade that needs to happen there, right? The idea of utility token versus security token really is just defining the legal structure of what it is, right? A utility, a utility token is something that is in this regulatory gray area. And a security token is we're going to remove that regulatory gray area. And we're going to say it is in fact a security. But the reality is you can issue a security token that acts like a utility token and you can issue, you know, and, and there's no, like for instance, Blockstack and INX were the two first companies to issue a token with an SEC registration statement and an S1 and a prospectus, but the tokens are no different than any other utility token. There's nothing, there's nothing asset backed or anything about that. So I think, you know, the way I think about characterization of assets is you have cryptocurrencies, you have platforms and protocols, you have asset backed tokens and you have pass through tokens. Any of these can be security tokens or not. That's just, that's just how you decide to structure the token, but those are really the four categories. So specific to asset-backed tokens, which are the most explicit form of a security, because if you're, you know, obviously if you're backed explicitly by a hard asset or by an income stream, you have to file this as a security. Um, it's, it's still early, right? There's not a lot of these yet because of all the things we just mentioned, right? It's expensive to file the regulatory filings. It also often doesn't make a whole lot of sense how you're doing it. So we're still early, but you're starting to see pockets of it. So you know, I already mentioned the NBA player, Spencer Dinwiddie, who said, I'm going to take my NBA salary and I'm going to tokenize that. There's going to be a hundred more of those pretty soon, but Spencer Dinwiddie and the NBA had so much pushback on that the first time that, the, that, that it probably didn't set the precedent that we wanted. So we'll probably have to kind of wait back. for the next one. You take a step back and wait for the next one, right? Like he wanted to make that more of an equity linked token where you were actually betting on his upside. And the NBA said, no way. And he ended up issuing it as like a, 4% yielding bond instead that was just backed by his salary. But you're going to start to see more athletes, more celebrities, more artists push the envelope on that in the future. 
Um, you're also going to see, you know, in the, in, in like the music and entertainment business, you have royalty streams that are flying off the shelves right now, right? You're going to start to see those kind of things get tokenized pretty soon. Um, you'll probably start to see unique hard assets, right? I always joke about like, imagine if the Mona Lisa was tokenized, like what would that be worth to thousands of investors who want to own a piece of the Mona Lisa where it still sits in the Louvre and you don't get to touch it or feel it, but you have actual ownership rights. Um, you know, you might see other hard assets, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that live in museums because start to get tokenized in this fashion where people actually own them, but they don't get the rights to touch them or hold them. Um, and then of course, uh, um, you know, you'll, you'll start to see eventually actual equity and debt instruments be tokenized as well. Now, the reason this isn't happening yet is partly because the infrastructure is not there, right? These are still totally separate worlds, right? If I want to own, you know, equities in a bank or a brokerage account, it's a totally different uh, workflow, sending that over to, you know, a Coinbase or a Binance or even a decentralized exchange and trying to invest in a, you know, a, a tokenized version of that. So there's still some pipes that need to be cleared out here in, in the sense of how do I get from, you know, old world into new world. But I think one of the, that stuff starts to play out, you, you'll start to see just about every asset ultimately be tokenized. And, and I mentioned our own ARCA Innovation Lab. You know, we, we have a, a fund called the ARCA U.S. Treasury Fund. It's just a sleepy, boring, short duration U.S. government bond fund, right? The AAA rated, safest thing on the planet, all the assets sit in a trust. Well, you can own this bond fund by owning a token that we call ARCOIN. A-R-C-O-I-N. And that token is just a digital representation of that fund. So think about what that means. The underlying instrument is the same. If you bought a PIMCO short duration bond fund, it's no different than buying the ARCA fund. The difference is you have to use the bank and brokerage system to buy and sell the PIMCO fund. Whereas we represent it as a blockchain based, you know, Ethereum based asset where you can send this peer to peer and instantaneous settlement and all that. thing. So that took us two years to work with the SEC to get that out. And ultimately, that's what everybody in this space is doing. If you're going to do this the right way and do true asset-backed tokens, you have to get the regulatory approval. You have to get the frameworks built. You have to get the pipes built. And that stuff just takes time. But there's, there's definitely interest in these assets um, from a demand side. We just have to figure out how to structure them correctly. Well, let's go into some of the benefits because, uh, you know, as people hear about security tokens and so forth, they always ask, what are the benefits? I mean, a lot of these crowdfunding sites, whether it's for real estate, venture, whatever it is, have developed to a point that, you know, it's pretty easy to crowdsource and raise capital. You know, what is going to be the benefits of the tokenization to come, come into that? Well, part of it is actually tokenizing things people care about, right? With, with all, I think like a year and a half ago, there was maybe like a $40 million hotel in Colorado called like the St. Aspen or something like St. Regis in yeah. Aspen that got tokenized. That's great, but who cares about owning a tiny little hotel? And you know, anybody who's a real estate investor already has access to plenty of private deals to invest in that, right? That's not that's not new and groundbreaking enough to make people be like, oh my God, I have to own a token to own this, right? Now you you now if you do what I said earlier and you tokenize the Mona Lisa, well, all of a sudden that does have real demand, right? That's something that people do care about, that people do want to buy, you know, whether it's for sentimental value or for art value or for inflation protection. Like that's something that people might actually want to own. And there was physically no way to own that previously, right? You can't just take, you know, you can't just say, hey, come invest as an LP in my fund. And now all of a sudden it's a token and get people to be like, oh, great, thanks. Like I can already do that, right? Same with a hotel. I can already do that. You need to tokenize things that people can't already do. And that opens up new investors and interest to do it. The, the second thing that I think makes a difference is every government around the world right now is daring you to own cash. They're just like, yeah, go ahead and own cash. We're going to inflate you out of it uh, or go ahead and park it in a, in a, in a yield uh, instrument. You're going to earn negative yield. Like 
they're daring you to own real estate, to own equities, to own hard assets. Exactly. Right. Well, that's great, except everybody has liquidity needs and that stuff's not liquid. It takes three to seven or even 10 days sometimes to get that money out. Like I'll give you a great example. I have a neighbor in LA who's a very big real estate um, investor. He got a call on a Saturday, him and his kids and my kids were out in the yard playing and he got a call about some hot property in Hawaii. This was on Saturday. This was the workflow that he had to do in order to put a, put an offer on that place. He had to wait till Monday morning, sell some Tesla and Apple stock, wait till that cleared his brokerage account, wait till he was able to clear that from his brokerage account to his bank account, and then send a wire that was going to take two days. It was Friday by the time that money was going to get there. Now, if you have all of your Tesla and Apple stock tokenized, that transaction is done in 10 minutes on a Saturday afternoon. So that's where we're headed. We're headed to a point where it doesn't, it's not about whether or not you can do this already somewhere else. It's about the speed and the settlement and the execution is going to enable everyone to be 100% invested at all times. You're not going to have to have this sleeve of useless, worthless liquidity when everything's liquid. Well, how do you think uh, oracles or on-chain will be able to get all the price feeds and you know daily, act, daily price feeds from off-chain assets yeah. like real estate? How do you kind of see that playing out? Uh, I, I, I don't. Um, I don't know is the answer. Right? <laughs> yeah. Again, you know, I'm not a software developer and we built Arca financially minded and we'll let the software developers and the geniuses handle that. Um, I know that's not a good answer to your question, but that's the reality, right? Like there hasn't been very many technologies in the world that haven't been solved at some point. If that's the holdup, somebody will solve that problem. So I don't know what the answer is, but I know there will be an answer. Yeah. So when it comes to like uh, tokenizing, we'll call it the Mona Lisa or anything, do you see that as a typical, uh, like a GPLP type of format? Like, is it someone that manages this indication or how do you see that playing out? Yeah. I mean, I think it, like anything, you need to have a pioneer, right? Somebody has to try it and see if it works. So I'll give you an example, right? When, when Google did their IPO back in 2004, um, they decided to do a Dutch auction. And everyone, all the investment bankers were like, what are you doing? Just do an IPO. Like, they're like, no, we don't need to pay you fees. We'll do a Dutch auction. And nobody knew how it was going to work. It was experimental. And ultimately they got it done. And the stock I think came at like 80 bucks and it was trading at 110 bucks, you know, within a few weeks. You, you, you look even last year, I think Spotify and Slack basically popularized the direct listing. They're just like, we're just going to, you know, do a direct listing and we'll see what happens. And all the market makers from Citadel to Knight, you know, started making markets in it and eventually it cleared at a price. Um, I think it's the same thing, right? Somebody's going to have to try this. And you're like, with it, we've already seen some experimentation. You saw the St. Regis Aspen Hotel. You saw the Spencer Dinwiddie, you know, salary bond. You saw, um, you know, INX and Blockstack do those, you know, regulated uh, entities. And, and obviously our own Rcoin from, from a, you know, SEC registered standpoint. So people are experimenting, groups are experimenting, but, but ultimately we won't know until we know. Somebody's going to do something that all of a sudden has incredible demand and there'll be a hundred copycats thereafter. So if you want to use the Mona Lisa as an example, most likely, you know, a museum is going to realize that, you know, instead of begging our customers for money, every time they come in the door to look at art, how about we issue a token backed by some of the pieces in here, raise money that way. Or maybe it's like a Wikipedia, maybe Wikipedia is like same thing. I, you know, I'm tired of asking for $3 donations every other day from our users. Let's go, you know, tokenize the IP that we own at Wikipedia or something. Right? You're going to see, you're going to see experimentation. And when you see it, investors are either going to accept it or not. And once somebody actually accepts it, it'll be copycatted everywhere. And you'll see a thousand of these within a month. Yeah. So how do we, as we've seen in crypto, right? Uh, over the years that once someone's doing something, it becomes copied real quick, right? Or somebody's trying to do the same thing. So as you know, there's a lot of 
issued tokens on certain assets moving forward, how do we like make sure that we don't over tokenize? Um, yeah, that's, that's a, a, is that, well, I, I mean, look, there, there's unlimited assets in the world right now, right? I mean, the, the world has never been awash with more cash chasing investment ideas. I, I don't think you can over tokenize. I think you can issue things in a structure that doesn't make sense, or you can potentially be ahead of your time, but I don't think you can oversaturate it. Meaning, you know, imagine if, you know, we'll take an example. Uh, imagine if Starbucks, you know, just came out tomorrow and said, we're pulling all of our shares off the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ, and we're going to tokenize our shares. And if you want to be a you know, shareholder in Starbucks, you need to figure out how to go on to a T-Zero or you know, some other site and buy it. You know, inevitably, inevitably, they'll probably lose you know, 50% of their investors who are like, no way, it's not worth it. But 50% of the investors might say, all right, I'll figure it out. Right? I want to own Starbucks. It's a great company, and I'm not willing to give up my equity ownership just because they're changing the way that I have to own it. And I think, I think that's what you'll have to see. You'll have to see companies and projects that people actually care about who are worth the hassle of doing it for. And then ultimately it becomes a no brainer for everyone else in the future. Right. And I think, you know, that's why I mentioned Spotify and Slack and Google as my examples earlier, like those companies were big enough to basically say, you know, F you, we're Spotify, we're Slack, we're Google. If you want to own us, this is how you're going to do it, figure it out. And I think the same thing's going to happen with tokenization. Someone eventually is going to say, we hold the power, not you investors. And this is how we're going to do it. And yeah, we're going to lose some of you along the way, but the rest of you are going to figure it out because you don't have a choice. This is how we're doing it. Do you think most of this will be first demonstrated or mostly demonstrated outside of the U.S. because of the laws and regulatory environment? I, I think so. Or I think somebody like, you know, a Jack Dorsey at Twitter or an Elon Musk at Tesla who basically doesn't care about the rules or at least wants to push the envelope on the rules, yeah. you know, they'll be the pioneer. They'll be the guinea pig. They'll say, we're going to do it. And yeah, we might get fined, but we'll set up, you know, at least we'll, you know, set up legal precedent along the way so that others can follow. Right. And again, this is where a lot of the, in, the misinformation is out there. Most of the things that are happening in the U.S. are not illegal. They're just not legal right? They're not doing anything <laughs> illegal. There's literally no rules or laws yet. You can't be breaking a rule if there is no rule. So I think the more, you know, and if you look at what the SEC and other regulatory bodies have done, they've cracked down on obvious frauds and obvious, you know, uh, 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 areas where somebody is in indefinitely breaking the law, right? They are, you know, they're, they're indisputably in breaking the law and the SEC or, or FINRA and others are going after them. I think, eventually somebody's going to challenge that and just say, no, we're going to do this this way. And if you don't like it, let's, you know, let's, let's set some legal precedent on what this law should be. And then eventually it becomes, you know, legal. So I, I don't know who that is per se, but you know, there's enough companies and people in the world who are big enough to challenge the regime. And, and I think that will happen. So for investors that are looking to set up a fund, whether that be onshore or offshore, is there a benefit to being offshore to participate in more global assets or yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, look, the 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 Cayman and BVI hedge fund structure has been around forever, well before digital assets, right? There's 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 always advantages to non be to not be in the U.S. from a tax standpoint, from a you know a, a, a jurisdiction standpoint. So I think that's true in digital assets. I think it's you know not any more or less true than anywhere else, right? There there's there's reasons that these entities exist the way they are. Um, but yeah, there's no question that being a non-U.S. investor right now in digital assets is more helpful because you definitely have a look on investment opportunities that you don't as a U.S. investor. And is there any good sites or do you guys use your own internal analysts or how do you best filter 
all the tokens out there? Because I mean, I feel like this is like some of these questions, every investor comes in, they're like, what should I buy, right? You get the phone calls, you get the text, you, you know, what is the best way to, for, you know, listeners to hone in on what they want to buy? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I set up a company and I run a fund designed to help investors do just this. So, you know, obviously my first answer would be don't do it yourself. Go find a fund manager to do it for you. Yeah, right? I, I, I recognize that that's, you know, I recognize that that's not uh, uh, something that everyone can do either because they don't meet the minimums or they aren't, you know, don't have the wherewithal to do the due diligence on different funds. But the short answer is this is a very difficult asset class to do by yourself right now. Um, you know, we have a seven person portfolio team that basically works 24 seven doing exactly what you just said, screening opportunities, researching, looking, you know, working with third party independent research firms, talking to other funds and, you know, OTC counterparties. Like, you know, we definitely have an advantage right now over a traditional retail investor. That said, again, there's no experts in this space yet. It's only been around for a few years. You decide you want to do the research on it, do the research on it, and you can go down every Reddit rabbit hole and every you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, um, you know, Twitter thread and figure it out yourself. Now the caveat there is of course, you might be getting a lot of bad information with good information. Uh, but the information is out there. You just have to, you know, take the time to do it. Yeah. Re and recently you put out, I think you recently wrote an article on four reasons DeFi naysayers are wrong. And I think you mentioned pomp kind of, you know, what, what's your take on DeFi and what's going on there? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I love Anthony Pompliano. I think he's done more good than, than bad, certainly, yeah. uh, for this space. Um, but in calling him out was simply, you know, he has a big audience, and I think his audience deserves to have the information accurate if he says something that is potentially incorrect. So, you know, he has his opinion, I have my opinion. I think the, the, the reason I was so adamant about pointing out the flaws in the DeFi argument was the, the, the DeFi argument was basically – if you want to invest in Bitcoin, go ahead. Bitcoin is, is proven that it's not going to get hacked and that it's safe. DeFi has not proven that. And for me, that's just flawed logic, right? If you want to be a customer of a DeFi protocol or a DeFi application where you are putting your own funds at risk to utilize the service, then yes, you are definitely taking some risks that you, you know, may want to research or think twice or have some software developer audit the code before you do that. If you are investing in the token that backs the DeFi protocol, you're not taking any more or less risk than when you back an equity, when you buy an equity or a private equity deal or a real estate or anything else. It'd be the equivalent of saying, if you think planes might crash one day, you can't own Delta stock. And that's obviously not true, right? Even if you don't want to ride the planes, you can still own the stock. And by the way, even if you don't ride the planes, other people will. So the stock's going to go up anyway. And that's the same thing with DeFi is even if you don't personally think that you are willing to take the risks of using decentralized banking or decentralized lending or decentralized asset management or insurance, other people clearly are. The, you know, the growth is happening with or without you. So if you want to be an investor in this space, it doesn't mean you have to put your funds at risk and use the platforms. And I think that's, that's why we took it to heart, or that's why, that's why we took on Anthony's um, comments the other day, is we think he was misleading investors into thinking that if you're an investor in this space, you're taking unnecessary risk. And we just don't see it that way. I, I, I totally get what you're saying. And, you know, all the hacks that do occur, obviously may not be good for the investors, but it's good for the ecosystem as a whole, because that's how we grow. Right. I mean, without problems, things don't get resolved. Exactly. Right. And, and, and as this ecosystem has matured, there are solutions to that as well. Like there's a, there's a protocol called Nexus Mutual that allows you to buy insurance directly on the DeFi platforms that you use. So if you decide to put, you know, a million dollars into you know, a DeFi protocol that let's say you're trying to, 
um, you know, earn some yield on your, uh, on your ETH. If you decide to put a million of ETH, million dollars worth of ETH into a protocol to earn a 12% annualized yield, well, you can write, you can buy insurance on that a million dollar of principal that you have at risk for, you know, usually about two to 3% per annum. So there are ways to hedge these risks out right now. And I think this general attitude, this general attitude of DeFi is too risky, therefore you can't touch it. It's just, it's just flat out inaccurate, right? There are ways to protect your assets now. There are ways to experiment without putting a ton of assets at risk. There's also non-custodial options. Like we mentioned Uniswap or SushiSwap and some of the decentralized exchanges. You don't even have to put your assets at risk to be a customer of those, right? You, you, are full, you are in full ownership or custody of your assets the whole time when you use some of these. So, you know, going to the top of the hour when we started talking, a lot of this space right now is just breaking down incorrect information or, or inaccurate information that is slowing down the natural evolution of the space. Right. There are ways to, to use this stuff. There are ways to participate either passively as just an investor or as a participant where you might be taking more risk, but you're getting more reward. But we shouldn't just blanketly say DeFi is too risky. Therefore, don't touch it. That just to me makes no sense. Correct. I think a lot of times maybe some of the time when the commentary comes from that direction, they haven't actually used it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they haven't actually dived in, spent the money and, and played around. So what right. is your when it comes to DeFi, obviously, there's always this talk of uh, Uniswap gas fees and just scalability. Do you think that all just works out over the next few years? Um, yeah, it, I mean, this space in general tends to overestimate the future and underestimate the present. So, and I think a lot of it is because this is such a venture capital driven industry. So, you know, how do VCs make money? They see the future, right? They buy the next hot thing. So every time something in this space has success, immediately the market says, well, who's going to beat them? Who's going to take them down, right? It'd be like, uh, you know, Uniswap has success. Okay, gas fees are too high. Let's go find, you know, a Binance smart chain version or, a, you know, Polkadot or, or Solano version, right? Um, I, I think in general, when you see real success in this space, you're supposed to be invested in that, right? This is early, this is early, early stage technology where the, the companies and projects that are working are probably going to continue to work. Um, it reminds me of like the Facebook IPO, like the Facebook IPO came at 40 bucks. It was botched by Morgan Stanley. It went down to 20 bucks and people are like, Oh, that's it. Social media doesn't work. And of course, you know, 10 years later, social media is doing great and Facebook and every other company is doing great too. Like I think every hiccup that we see, whether it's in a token price or it's in gas fees or something, is going to get solved by somebody. Um, and, and it is a problem. It's not, I'm not trying to say that, that every problem in the space should also just be immediately dismissed, but I do think the companies and projects that are showing success are going to show continued success as well. And you don't have to chase every up and coming project uh, at the expense of the ones that are clearly working. What's your thought on just how the DeFi space is going to evolve over the next few years and what is actually going to be you know, developed a little bit more at scale for investors to come on board? Well, the, the, the first part of it is that you know, DeFi is almost a household name now, but nine months ago, nobody even knew what it was, right? So it's still pretty early, right? You know, again, going back to what we said earlier, like most people still think Bitcoin and ETH and crypto are all the same. So it's going to take some time for people to even understand what DeFi really means, that it's not just a buzzword, that there's real companies and projects in this space that are, that are, that are building you know, applications that will work long into the future. Um, it, to me, it's, it's, it's almost like that Malcolm Gladwell tipping point. Something's going to happen where all of a sudden it just becomes okay to use these platforms. And you, you don't have to go back that far to think about it, right? When, when the internet first started taking off in the late 90s and early 2000s from a, com, from, from a commercial standpoint, 
most people were terrified to put their credit card in, you know, to buy something, right? You, you didn't even have to be internet. Like I remember going to airports in, in the early 2000s where you had to slide your credit card to get your plane ticket. And you said, you know, half the people would wait in an hour line instead to get a paper ticket because they're like, I'm not doing this electronic ticket. What is this? I'm going to take my paper ticket. And then eventually it just became accepted, right? Eventually everyone's like, yeah, I'll put my internet on the credit card. It's fine. And yeah, I'll go take an electronic ticket. It'll be fine. So I think that same thing will happen here where I don't know what causes that tipping point, but in retrospect, it'll be easy to see where all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I, I, you know, I own assets in a you know, custodial wallet on MetaMask. And yeah, I, you know, I was looking for a loan. So I went to, you know, Av or Compound to get that loan rather than to a bank. And, you know, I, it's certainly going to be driven by the younger generation who's just much more comfortable with the space than they are, you know, going to a traditional bank or traditional financial institution. Do you think Ave Compound, you know, and when it comes to exchanges, Uniswap, uh, you know, Sushi, uh, One Inch, do you think all these leaders are pretty much so far out ahead that they're going to be the dominant forces next few years? Um, I do, but but not necessarily because I think the technology or the blockchain itself is the, is the best. I think it's because, again, most people underestimate the stickiness of customers, right? Even though even though in this decentralized world and in this token world, you can move assets around seamlessly without, you know, having to stay in one place. The reality is most people care about workflow. And if I'm used to going to Uniswap or I have a plugin through Uniswap through my MetaMask, I'm just going to keep using it. And I think that's the majority of people is you have to do something. Like I remember back, back when I was uh, working at a debt and equity fund, you know, we had a prime broker and the prime broker was fine. I don't know if they were the best, but they were fine. And every six months, new prime brokers are coming and be like, here's what we can do for you. And it's like, my entire workflow is built through this other prime broker. It's just not going to happen. Like, it doesn't matter how good your service is. There's no way I'm going to take the switching costs. And I think that's where people generally underestimate the digital asset world is yes, it's physically easy to move assets from one place to another, but most people aren't willing to make change when they're happy with the service. So I think you will start to see the Uniswaps of the world and the OVs of the world who already have a lead. I think they'll focus a lot on customer service and making sure that they, you know, hold on to those customers. And so for all the listeners, what, what's your thoughts on just the best areas or, you know, that they should look at moving forward? Where do you think the best opportunity is for investors to start placing their money? Um, so we, we're thematic investors at Arca. We, t- we tend to go top down. And then once we find a theme, we go bottoms up to find the best way to express that theme. So we still think thematically DeFi is going to grow leaps and bounds from here. I mean, it is, there's, there's, no, there's no reason to believe that that growth is going to slow down. Um, we're also pretty bullish on, on the idea of Web 3.0, right? This idea of getting rid of some of the middlemen um, and, and having, you know, basic internet type services in a decentralized fashion rather than always running through some sort of centralized entity. Um, but the other big one that we're into is what we call the digitization of the fan experience. So you're starting to see sports and music and entertainment companies really engage directly with fans. And there's a few companies that are facilitating that, um, you know, the green Bay Packers have been owned collectively by their fans forever but for 30 years, there was no innovation there. Well, now you're starting to see a company like Socios, which has the Chili's token, CHZ, and they're issuing tokens on behalf of AC Milan and FC Barcelona and Juventus. And they're basically saying, if you're a fan of those teams, come get a token. And that token will give you voting rights on you know, what jerseys they wear or you know, who's going to start in an exhibition. And, and all of a sudden, you start to connect the fan directly to the team or directly to the athlete or directly to the celebrity. And you're going to see a lot more of that, right? You're seeing Rally doing it in the music world. Um, there, there's probably going to be, you know, 
I think Audius is doing it in the music world as well. So there's a lot of opportunity here where you're going to connect directly from, you know, entity to fan and you're going to use blockchain and a token. So those are some of the themes we're looking at. Um, you know, but like anything, I think once you, you're going to hear a lot of things from a lot of people in a bull market, right? Everybody, I get, I get, I get 50 texts a week right now from people that I didn't even know cared about digital assets. I'm sure everyone else is doing it as well. You know, you're going to hear tips. You're going to hear things here and there. My, My suggestion would just be, if you hear a tip, look into it for at least an hour, just what it is, what does the token actually do? What problem are they solving? Um, and chances are, you know, you're going to get more right than wrong as long as you avoid losers, not so much pick winners, but there will be losers in the space and you have to do your work to avoid them. Any comments on NFT, current NFT hype? Uh, I, I, <laughs> I think, I mean, I purposely avoided NFT. NFTs is one of the themes that we're investing in, but I purposely avoided it because it is, uh, because it is a buzzword and so hype right now. But I think, I think NFTs is, is it's going to be very difficult for institutional investors to invest in NFTs. Um, there's only a handful of actual platforms or, or kind of bigger picture NFT themes to take advantage of. The growth in NFTs is going to be at the individual NFT level, right? The sports card, the, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, collectible, the in-game item. That's really hard for a fund or an institutional investor to get behind, but it's really fun and exciting for retail. Like that, like, that is the perfect example of, you should own it because you think it's cool and because you like it, not because you're necessarily trying to make money on it. And I think you're going to see a huge growth in NFTs at the retail level that maybe never really translates to the institutional level. And do you think some of the pricing in the market, obviously everyone's trying to find out where everything's going to price. I mean, do you think we're overvalued or, you know, where do you see it play out for artists and everybody over the next few years? In NFTs specifically or across? I mean, when you're looking at the the whole idea of an NFT, right? A non-fungible token where what you own is unique and there's no replica of it. Essentially, that's the definition of it's worth whatever someone's willing to pay for it, right? I mean, you know, I used to trade physical baseball cards when I was a kid. And, and, you know, you tell me what a Daryl strawberry rookie was supposed to be worth back then. It's it's worth whatever the kid in the, you know, playground was willing to pay me for it. So, um, you know, I think price discovery is going to be just as challenging in this blockchain digital asset world as it is in the real world. The difference is if you really do have so many people looking at it, then eventually you'll have validation points along the way, right? Like again, going back to sports cards, the wild sports cards were the wild, wild west 30 years ago, because you could only go to like a show or go to an individual store and try to get something. And then you'd go trade it in the, in the, you know, at recess at school. Over time, what happened? You had Beckett and you had other services that said, here's what the pricing should be. And people would converge to that price. And then over time you had eBay and eBay is like, well, you know, now it doesn't matter if you're a thousand miles or 10,000 miles away, we can get you that card if you want it. Again, that starts to converge that, that idea of what something is worth. So NFTs are going to be the same thing. If there's enough eyeballs looking at it, enough people talking about it, there will start to be price discovery around just how many transactions there are and how many um, uh, uh, people have opinions on what that transaction value should be. That's ultimately what we're going through for quite a few years now is price discovery in this whole entire market, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's good. I appreciate that. So to leave off, I mean, what is uh, the biggest thing that you've implemented in your life that has helped increase your net worth? Uh, taking huge losses. Um, I, I think a lot of people, especially in this space, um, you know, I joke sometimes like, you know, what, what do you call a portfolio manager in crypto? And the answer is, you know, 
first year analyst because most people, <laughs> most people aren't qualified to be running fiduciary capital or running outside money in this space, right? Like you, you can, you can learn how to trade in a few days. You can learn how to, you know, do analyst work in a few months, but there's no shortcut to uh, risk management and experience. Like you just can't, you know, I have 20 years of experience losing money and making money and learning from my mistakes. So for me, the biggest increase to net worth is making those mistakes and learning from them. That's very interesting. So I just posted on Twitter, someone said something about selling investing courses. I said, best ways to just do and have losses. Mm-hmm. That, that's interesting. You just said that because until you have those losses, you really don't uh, learn risk management. Yep, exactly. Well, I appreciate coming out today, Jeff. Uh, what is the best way for anybody to reach you? Yeah, appreciate coming on. Uh, for anyone who wants to learn more, I'm on Twitter at jdorman81. Um, on our website, ar.ca, we have a blog that we write every week called That's Our Two Satoshis, where we try to break down some of the complex topics that we were talking about today. Um, you know, and uh, obviously on LinkedIn, our website, Twitter, feel free to reach out and uh, look forward to talking to anyone who wants to learn more. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joe. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. We'll see you on our next episode. Thanks for listening to The Joe Roberts Show. Take these tips and insights that you can use to help grow your own personal wealth and share them with a friend that could also benefit. Don't miss a single episode or updates. Subscribe to our email list at joerobert.com. And as always, keep pushing yourself towards a more impactful life.